You are listening to Mountain Bike Radio. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Inside Mountain Bike Radio. I think you're going to find this episode pretty interesting, informative, and just a really cool story. My guest, Sven Cole, has raced the 24 Hours of Great Glen 18 of its 19 years, and this year will be his 19th. He's great perspective and a lot of different experience that I think a lot of you will find very relatable. Before we get to the episode, I want to cut in with a little bit of business because I've been receiving emails, questions from a lot of listeners wondering how they can help Mountain Bike Radio. My answer is two things. One, obvious, it's word of mouth. If you're out in a ride or you know, maybe you're after a ride and somebody asks you about Mountain Bike Radio, show them, talk about it, pull up the app, show them what it's all about, and then they can listen to it on the ride home. Two, most importantly, become a Mountain Bike Radio member. I don't beg often, but I'm asking you for some help. Um, it's the only way, honestly, that Mountain Bike Radio can continue, exist, grow, and become something much better. You know, there's a lot of things I want to do and improve on and make the best I can. And honestly, it's not going to happen unless we can continue to, to grow the mountain bike member base. Get information about that. You can go over to mountainbikeradio.com forward slash membership. That lays out the details, lays out the list of current members and gives you all the information you need to know. What is it? Because some of you won't be able to click on it right away. <laughs> what is a mountain bike radio member? What it is, is you give money to Mountain Bike Radio. In exchange, you get a list of goods. You get included in the Mountain Bike Radio Inner Circle, which is a private forum on Slack.com. You get Mountain Bike Radio stickers. You get listed on the membership page. And you get access to a bunch of benefits. So the benefits depend on the different levels, but they include a t-shirt, hat, or fix-it sticks, and a list of deals. So percentages off everything from nutrition to like wolf tooth components, carbo rocket, tailwind, uh, nutrition, coaching from Kelly Jennings, coaching and plans from Kelly Jennings, training plans from Linda Wallenfels, training plans from Drew Etzel, whole bunch of stuff right there only for members. And that list will continue to grow. So it's pretty simple. Head over to mountainbikeradio.com forward slash membership and you'll find out all information right there. One thing about the membership before I will get to the episode, I want to give a shout out to the sustaining members. They are the ones with the highest, uh, at the highest level currently, and there's four of them. So I just want to give a quick shout out to Jeff Shaney. He's from Ohio. Bob Anderson from California. Gary Gutowski from Colorado and Amir Matatayu from California. So those four people, I appreciate all the members, but those four people I want to give a special shout out to because they have contributed at the highest level and it means a lot and I'm very much appreciated. Enjoy the episode. Hello listeners with me. I have Sven Cole who will, you will hear all about it, but he's going on his 19th year of racing the 24 hours of great Glen. So Head over to 24hoursofgreatglen.com. It's the number 24hoursofgreatglen.com. It is August 7th through the 9th out in New Hampshire. So head over to the website. I'll include some links in the show notes. 
All details will be right there. But let's talk to Sven. Sven, you you have a history with this race, but let's step back. We'll take five, ten minutes. Let's talk about who you are, why you do this, kind of your background. Give people an idea of who you are. Certainly. Well, thank you, Ben. This this is exciting. Um, I started racing back in the mid '80s, uh, predominantly on the road, uh, and it was a way to you know stay in shape for ski season. I had actually broken my leg and and going into my junior year of of high school and wanted to get fit. Uh, for the upcoming ski season and got turned on to racing bikes. And there was this American that was doing really well, Greg LeMond. And I was fascinated by all the color and pageantry that went along with, uh, with racing bikes and, and really got into it and got introduced to mountain biking in the early nineties. Um, and fell in love with any way I could getting around on, on two wheels. Uh, the 24 hour race for me was I had started working at Great Glen Trails Outdoor Center. Um, and I had heard the year before I got there, I'd heard about this crazy race that they had did the 24 hours of great Glen. And, uh, my first year there, we put a bunch of people together that were working in the shop and we were racing and working the race at the same time. I remember literally one lap going out and I was wearing my green khaki shirt and had a radio clipped to my belt. Um, and was, you know, at times stopping along the course and fixing some barriers or, you know, checking on riders and uh, just had a great time. I, I fell in love with the idea of riding at night and the camaraderie of people around the race and, and just this, this insanity of, you know, starting a race at noon to the start of cannon fire, which is another interesting part, uh, and then racing all the way through the evening and, and into the next day. Um, and I fell in love with it, you know, the, the very first time I did it. So I was working at Great Glen for a few years, and every year we would sort of put a team together and it would be made up of some folks that worked in the shop. Um, my mom and my dad and my wife have all raced with me on, on various teams. Um, and so it was kind of a family thing. And the crazy part is when I first started racing it, my wife and I had just been married and we had no kids. Um, and we're going into this race and my oldest is 16 years old and she has her driver's test next week. And my youngest is 12 and both of them are considering uh, you know, racing this year. Both of them have done the 24-minute race. Um, but this is something they've grown up around literally their entire lives. And they're both pretty sad that this may be the last go around. So they're, they're contemplating jumping in and, uh, riding some laps. Dad. (laughs) Well, that's, Uh, that's that's great. That's awesome. What can you, let's take a step back to those early years. I want, I want to give listeners an idea of what the trails were like. You, you said you worked there for a little while and what was it like that, that first year you did it, you know, trail wise, was it, were the trails already established or was it something where you guys are at that point beating trails into the, the terrain? Yeah. What was it like then? There's a little bit of a combination of, of the two. Great Glen Trails Outdoor Center has, uh, they, they built a set of carriage roads in essence, gravel roads, beautiful, you know, go out and you could ride a road bike on them. Actually, people have ridden road bikes on, on the, those trails. Um, so that was what the, the basis of the system was. And then there were some interconnects. There were some shortcuts between some of the gravel loops um, that started to get ridden in. And uh, Howie Weems, who's the general manager up there, and Paul Giblin, who was the longtime event promoter for the race, um, a c- couple years previous to that, had gone down to um, the, the 24-hour rate down, down in Canaan. And they fell in love with that concept, but they weren't really mountain bikers. And when they talked to Laird Knight down there, the promoter, he had said, if you can build it, they'll ride it. 
Well, yeah. they took that pretty literally. So some of the trails in that first year, which I didn't race, but I, I've heard the legends, mm-hmm. some of the trails in that first year were just ridiculous. They, they were borderline like trials riding um, in the woods. And so by the next year, my first year, the trails had gotten a little bit better, but there was a section, of course, known as, um, known as Outback. And actually, there's still a section named Outback, but it's, it sort of has changed. It's a new version of it. Okay. But it was, you know, traditional New England, rooty, rocky, slimy, uh, narrow single track that very, very few people could ride. And for a 24 hour race, that becomes, Oh yeah, it was brutal. Right. It was brutal. And, and it's kind of funny because, um, after I left Great Glen, I was working for a company called RSN television and we shot a segment of, uh, the then solo champion of the race, Ward Solar, um, riding each individual section of this outback piece. And nobody believed it was rideable. And I remember shooting the, the video and it was a wet day and he was cleaning sections with no running start. You know, we would shoot a section and say, okay, you got to stop here. We got to go reset the camera. <laughs> and he'd get like one pedal stroke in and clear oh, it. Yeah. And I was just like, oh my God, I, I never, I never seen riding like that. It was really impressive. On uh, something that wasn't exactly a high tech, uh, bike at the time, I'm guessing. No, no, it was <laughs> Cannondale hardtail with a head shock. I can still see it. It was purple. Um, and, and it was, it was neat. So you had, it was still a pretty hardcore group. It was part party atmosphere, part people going out and really racing. Um, the lights back in the, the late nineties were terrible. <laughs> Three pounds with no lumens. Oh, yeah. I mean, we were strapping what? like, you know, petzels on our head. I mean, it was, right. it was, it was a joke. You couldn't see anything. Right. Um, what, but it was fun. What it kind of, fun. what kind of, I'm curious, what kind of bike you started off with? Do you remember? I, I do. It's actually it's a bike I sold just a few years ago, and I'm so angry that I did because my wife still has hers. It was a 1995 Specialized uh, Stump Jumper M2, the S Works edition, and it had the carbon fiber Rockshock Judy that had the uh, the carbon fiber FS, FSX legs, and it was such a. I remember when I got it. It was like the, I got it on Pro Deal. I was working for a shop in Vermont at the time, and it was such a beautiful bike. Um, and last time I rode it, I was like, this thing is God awful because, you know, it's just technology's changed so much, but I have so many fond memories of that. The old, uh, gray specialized, what was that? The, um, Umaguma rubber or whatever that's supposed to be super sticky that slipped on yeah. every route you could find. Oh. Um, but that was my first rig for that race. Listeners, if that doesn't bring you back, it, this is my whole point of the discussion. Right. Over the course of the 19, well, this, this year will be your 19th year of doing it. Correct. Yes. We've gone from that to, we'll talk about what you ride now in a little <laughs> bit, but, um, so that was the beginning. The yes. lights, the crazy stuff, you know, fast forward maybe five years from that. How did it change and how did you change as a rider from that, from that first time, you know, for that Certainly. first, first, cause, cause really, I mean, you get into it and you start doing those type of races or doing any type of races, right? The first one, like you said, you're showing up in a, a button up shirt and some khaki yeah. shorts <laughs> and then you quickly progress to having everything kind of set up. And so talk about that. Yeah, certainly. You, you start getting wise to the fact that the, the riding part, while that is certainly hard, um, can be made a lot easier with the preparation that you do beforehand and in camp. Yes. Um, so certainly a, a couple of Just things. Have, have your stuff together so you're not tempted yes. to sit in there all the time. Yeah. So go ahead. Oh, and you know, you'd, you'd find that buddy of yours that's a pretty good mechanic 
and you'd basically buy them a case of beer to come up and sit and sit in the campsite for <laughs> exactly. the uh, the weekend, and you'd feed them and let him. You'd roll in, and he'd take care of the bike and make sure that it was clean and and ready to go for your next lap. Because in those early years, I was racing on a team, um, so either a four person or a five person team. So you'd have some downtime. And the things that I learned was you can't own enough pairs of shorts, you can't own enough pairs of socks. And it's worthwhile owning at least two pairs of cycling shoes and several pairs of gloves because there's nothing more disgusting than at two in the morning trying to put on a pair of wet bike shorts um, to go back out. So, you know, that was one of the things that it it only took probably two years of racing to be like, all right, I'm going to I'm going to make sure I pack every pair of uh, every chamois I've got and take it with me. Right. Um, that and the fact that you made damn sure your lights worked well and that they were charged because, um, while there might be a hundred people racing, it can feel awfully lonely up in Pinkham notch in the middle of the night when your lights go out because, you know, they're all spread out over eight miles and, and it can be a while before somebody comes by and then you can sort of jog behind them and try and keep up with them. Right. Um, you you mentioned, you mentioned Pinkham notch. Uh, I forgot to mention in discussing the website, that listeners, this is at the base of Mount Washington. Yes. So you've heard of Mount Washington road climb. Maybe some of you have traveled up there, but this is right at the base. There's a bunch of trails and some cool stuff down there. Um, but I forgot to mention that at the beginning. So I wanted to mention that. Um, okay. So, so you've learned this stuff. You've, uh, how have things changed, you know, five, five years down the road. Are there some of these fancier people coming in all the, I guess the, the racer guy who's doing a ton of laps with the big fancy lights, when did those yes. people start showing up? They they started show, showing up pretty early in. Okay. I mean, I think by 2000, 2001, um, word was getting out and the prizes were getting pretty decent. I don't remember what the prize purse was, but you could it could be a profitable weekend if you were a fast team. And, you know, people started showing up with motorhomes. Um, people started really the tent setups went from, you know, dilapidated pop-up tents, which is what most people are into, to pretty – you know, a couple easy ups set up for where you would sit and, you know, wait for your lap and a, an easy up for the mechanic and then a nice tent or a, or a motor home uh, for the riders. People started and even the people who weren't riding that seriously started taking the weekend more seriously. So you'd see more elaborate grill setups. You would see um, people that were foregoing the cooler and bringing, you know, propane fired um, like mini refrigerators. Um, and, and you'd have sort of the, the mix of the teams that were sponsored by breweries. So you'd see a team from Harpoon, a team from Moat Mountain, um, a team from Smutty Nose, and then you'd see teams from Cannondale and SRAM. And, and it was kind of cool because you saw both ends. You saw the guys shaved up and in, in tight lycra and, you know, their four or 5% body fat. And then you'd see the other guy across the way that could probably not eat for a month and still be okay. <laughs> carrying a few extra hot dogs around. Um, but they were both up there. They were both riding the course. They were both having an experience. Um, and that was the part that became really cool because on the course, you know, people were racing hard, but there was an etiquette that formed with the race. And that was something that was neat. Having been a road racer early on, you know, if you, you work really hard to get up to your cat two level or whatever, and, and those cat fives, and those cat fours, man, those freds were always in the way. <laughs> yeah. And in, in this race, you had more Freds than, than you had, you know, cat one type guys, but the cat one guys recognized that without those, those guys out there having a good time, this race wouldn't exist. So they might come up and be like on your left, on your right. But 
it was never aggressive. And that was one of the things that I really noticed about it was I never got yelled at, you know, because I, I had a few years where I was relatively fast, but the majority of my time racing up there has just been having fun and, and you know, competing against some local guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were, you were trail fodder at times, you know, yeah. you knew that you were going to get picked off and you try and think about, all right, I'm going to ride hard to this spot up here and then I'm going to ease up because that's a better spot for somebody to pass. Right. And, but, I and think, sometimes it was cool though, too, with the, some of those fast guys, they go blowing by. It's like, holy crap. How oh, are yeah. you doing that at one in the morning? Absolutely. Three in the morning. You're a solo guy, you know? Absolutely. And that was one of the other things that they did is they changed for the solo riders early on. They changed the number plates so that the solo riders not only had a number plate that was a different color, but they got a tag that hung off their seat. Um, that also designated they were a solo. And I thought that was cool when I was racing on teams to be able to cheer those guys on. When I transitioned over to racing solo, it was really neat because the support you got from the entire community, from the fastest guy out there who was killing himself, you know, his chest is slamming out at 196 beats per minute, but he was still trying to say, nice work solo as he went by. And that was something that was really, really cool. Yeah, it seems like that whole movement, it's just endurance mountain biking in general, but you know, especially the 24 with the laps, it becomes, it, it grew organically from the beginning. Yes. You know, yep. like you said, to have the mix of racers and everyone encouraging everyone, it just formed, it formed completely naturally. And every race that I've done, every solo 24 I've done, it's the same way. There was never yep. like, thinking back on it, there was never a situation where I was like, man, that guy was such a dick and you yeah. know, he got in my way and cut me off or I, he was yelling at me. It just doesn't happen in that kind of race. And those very few times that you would hear that in the timing tent, it was so rare. And it was funny. It would sort of catch you off guard where I, I raced cross for a while. And that was like, yeah, you right. that, that's like every race ended in protest. Right. So like the finished result was irrelevant until all the protest period was over. Yeah. And and that's something I always really appreciated about 24. And when I went through various years, you know, over a 19 year span, this being my 19th, gone from racing, you know, some years where I was pretty serious about it to other years where, uh, you know, biking was just it was more mental therapeutic. And to now probably the last five, uh, five to seven years. I sort of, I joke, I'm more touring for time. You know, I put a number on, I go up and I've been racing solo for about the last 10 years and go up and I have a good time. You know, I'll put in anywhere. Some years last year, I broke my race bike right before the race. So the only bike I had was my fat bike. Um, And so I raced on that and I only did five laps, but that's because a 42 pound fat bike is a lot different than a 19 pound carbon race bike. Yeah. but it was still fun. It was like, you know, it, it became a new challenge and it was a good time and people are cheering you on because they were like, oh, what is this guy doing? You know, and then uh, people that I knew on, on course were, were thought it was a riot because I've, you know, raced single speed. I've raced, uh, you know, geared bike. And then last year I figured, hey, what the hell? I'll race on a fat bike. Right. Well, um, I won't do that again for the record. That, that, <laughs> OK. Or maybe uh, just a lighter fat bike. Yeah, actually, that's true. This woman went by me. Um, this was funny last year. There's this woman on a salsa bear grease, you know, that carbon, really nice fat bike. And I'd seen her earlier and she sort of crept up on me, said, on your left. And then she just stomped on it. And I had been in my head saying, well, I'm doing pretty well. I'm on a fat bike. That's my excuse. Right. And she went by me like I was sitting still. And I went, no, that excuse is out the window, man. That's it, it's the dude on the bike that's fat at the moment. That that has nothing to do with it. Right. When you uh, when you first started racing, were you like full on? 
racer guy? Did you spend time training and doing all this stuff? Or were you always kind of just to get out, do the whole night, race around as much as you could? Where where did you stand? Yeah, when I, when I, first, when jumped, first, when I first started working at Great Glen, I was sort of at um, – I'd raced pretty heavily in high school and in college. And then I was, you know, early marriage and, and I wasn't racing that much. I was still riding a bunch. And then I, I got the bug again. Quite okay. honestly, I'd sort of lost the interest in road racing and mountain biking had always been just something fun to do. So mountain bike racing, especially endurance racing, really caught my attention. So that sort of built up okay. um, over time and probably in the midpoint of my 24 hour time frame, there were probably about four or five years where I was training pretty heavily again, um, putting in some pretty significant miles and, you know, actually paying attention to what I was eating and paying attention to my training. I was never, I, I never made it up to like an elite level in, in mountain biking or cyclocross, but I would be on like in the, the Mount Washington Valley. You know, one year I won the, um, the expert division in the local racing series and, yeah. and had some decent results. Right. Um, but never, that time had passed. Let's put it that way. I was realistic right. about what I could and couldn't do. Was was there uh, a year? Was there a year in that middle part of you doing these that you realized you got done with it and you said, "You know what? I just don't. I'm I'm good with just showing up and doing it." Yeah, I th I think so. I mean, I, I think there's always that moment. One of the beauties of endurance racing is your peak performance. It stretches quite a ways. I'm, I'm just turned 42, so I'm. I still look at, I look at people like Ned Overend and, and these guys that are just still absolutely killing it um, well past what we've always thought of as our athletic peak. Uh, and there's this other guy, Derek Griggs, who's a New England racer who's in his 50s and is just, he's, a, he's an inspiration in terms of the, the riding that he does. So I still get the bug to start training and again. It's just more, <laughs> it's a time commitment oh, right, uh, right. That, I, that I haven't really been able to wrap my head around. But I think every year you go into the race and, and I don't think – actually, I know for a fact I'm not the only one that does this. But you start laying down your excuses a good couple weeks before, <laughs> yeah. before an endurance race, especially if you know your buddy's going to be there, right? Right. And, and so that's the other part that's kind of fun is the ribbing that goes along with this. And when you get a little bit past your prime and, and you maybe have to buy the stretchy pants as opposed to the skinny jeans, you go, all right, maybe, maybe I got uh, to start thinking about how I'm going to approach this. But then you get into it. And you, you know, the years of experience, knowing the course inside and out, you know, having been riding a bike for a long, long time, you start realizing, hey, there's there's some tactical advantages that I have over some of these other riders. Like I know where to put in the effort. I know where you can get rest. I know where you can make a pass. I know where it's worth throwing the big ring and just crushing it because you'll be able to carry momentum. Mm -hmm. um, and so then you start you go out with the intent of riding relatively, you know, moderate cause you're doing, you're racing solo. So you're like, well, I, I don't want to totally kill myself, but then you're like, oh, I'm going to go put in a couple hot laps and then you start getting into it. And then you pull into the pit and your wife and kids are like, what are you doing? You look like you're about to puke. Um, but you get into it, you know, right. it, it's fun. Right. When did the, when did the kids come along? What year? Uh, let's see. Liz was born in 99. So that would have been, she was, she was born right before the, so I raced what I raced, 97. So 97, 98, and then she was there as a four-month-old, five-month-old okay. at the, uh, my third race. Okay. Um, so my wife actually raced in the second one with me. And then I think my mom and dad actually jumped on a team, which was kind of – that was kind of fun. And then my wife jumped in a couple teams for a few years after that. Um, and, yeah, so it was always a mixed bag. And then one year – 
we had this guy Ward Solo, uh, Ward Solar, who had won the solo for a bunch of years, and he hadn't been mountain biking that much. He was the guy I was telling you about that rode yep. the, the single track really well. Yep. So he jumped on our team, and we did a five person team, and it was Ward Solar and the RSN Cowboys was the name of the team, and. Ward made this pass that I've, I've been trying to find the footage of it because RSN had a crane shot of it. There was this section of the course that's no longer there called the plunge, which was this maybe about 75 yards long, but you dropped about 50 feet. I mean, it was a really steep descent. And there was a pro rider from Cannondale. This is the very first lap. And, you know, you sort of everyone's waiting. And I'm the, I'm the second rider for our team that year. And, all of a sudden, I just hear this this up this complete explosion of people screaming and cheering, and I'm like, "What the hell just happened?" Of course, I'm in the tent waiting for the the, the baton pass, and all of a sudden, I hear Ward Solar making an epic pass on the plunge, and he basically just aired over the forehead of this descent, passing the guy from Cannondale, and he came into the tent. So that's always the thing I always point out. Hey, yeah, I led the 24 hour race one year, lost the lead in about five seconds, but right. <laughs> we're beating there for for a moment. Um, but that's a piece of footage that you may be able to find somewhere. I've actually, I've seen it on YouTube before, but it was just this. He comes out of the woods out of nowhere and basically airs over most of the descent, passing the guy from Cannondale. It was, it was so cool. As you transitioned in those middle years, your kids came along and you're still racing and your time is short and you maybe have a little bit more money as you get along in your career. Yep. What kind of bike are you at, the, at this point? <laughs> I, I guess you know, as the the modern quote, oh, absolutely modern era of bike, modern era of bikes. What were you on? What were you using? What when you looked around? How did it change from that first year? Yeah, absolutely. Riding a hardtail, you know, and and uh, really, you know, two and a half inches of front suspension, twenty six inch wheel, and then I remember I was on a Kona. Um, God, it was a bear. What the hell was the name of it? It was a dual suspension. Um, probably about three, three inches of travel front, front and rear, 26 inch wheel. And I love that bike. It was a, a bear deluxe and it was a, it was an awesome riding bike. Wasn't so much a full bore race bike. You know, that was when there was that you used to buy a mountain bike. And if you got a high end mountain bike, the only choice you had was a, a race bike. <laughs> yeah. And that was when they started, you know, transitioning to, you could buy the hardtail race bike with the real aggressive geometry, or you could get something that was still relatively light, but had front and rear suspension because racers still didn't use rear suspension. But 24 hour period, you're like, yeah, I'll take that. And, and that was the first dual suspension rig I had. Love that. And then I ended up moving over to a Santa Cruz blur, um, 26 inch wheel. And, and that was probably the, from a 26 inch setup, that was the nicest rig I'd ever had. And it was like butter on that course. And it definitely made riding the single track and the descents just so much more fun. You didn't necessarily feel like you were taking your life into your own hands. Yeah, exactly. When you, when you looked around the other people were they, was it kind yeah, of, where is it kind of something where you realized, stopped. holy crap, that people are spending a lot of money on bikes now? Yeah. I mean, and that's, I'm trying to think that was, that was definitely mid two thousands. And right. some of that was, you know, looking over to what was happening in the road world. Um, you know, Lance was on his run. I know he didn't actually officially win anything now, but he was, you know, during that time, Kicking he was winning everything and, and people were getting fired up about bikes and carbon had started to sneak in and, and, you know, aluminum and titanium 
Uh, at that point, Ty was still pretty hot. Carbon was starting to come on, but it wasn't that big in mountain bikes yet. And you just started noticing not only were the bikes nicer, the cars in the parking lot were nicer. That's what I was going to ask next. Yeah. The, the, the area around that, the people that were coming out to now do this, is, yeah. it became a little That's bit changing. different crowd. Yeah, It definitely was changing. And I, and I think to some extent, you know, it was definitely uh, the party got maybe a little bit um, louder, um, but probably was a little bit more PC than in those early years. Right. You know, I'm thinking of like early Pedro's Fest in the 90s when you, when half the time you'd be riding at night with no clothes on. I mean, that that's that's that era seems to have gone away a little bit. And but it was it was a good time. And, and people definitely had a little bit of money. The lights were getting way better, which meant people were riding fast at night. That was the thing that I started noticing in the mid 2000s was there wasn't much of a difference between day lapse and night lapse. Um, unless the weather was really funky. And of course, at Mount Washington, you can have some funky weather. Um, and also the course would get better. I mean, and that's still true to this point. The course gets faster through the 24 hour weekend. Um, part of that is, you know, the, the fast line gets grooved in. Um, but also if they're, unless it's raining, the water sort of gets squeezed out of the course a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and, so people that's, learn, I, and people learn the lines, you know, after yeah, they've done a lap or two, they, they have it dialed. Yeah, they're, they're cranking around. And, and so you would notice um, not only the bikes getting nicer, you know, people were, you didn't see as many cotton t-shirts and cut off denim jeans. Um, you didn't see any more Bell V1 Pro helmets. Um, Damn. you know, that was, that was something I remember seeing the first couple of years. Um, how and, about the trails? Did they do a lot of work over that course? Of yeah. The trails and how has that changed? How did that change in that period? That changed a lot in those first couple of years. Um, you know, it was going from build anything and they'll ride it to no, 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 no. The, you know, there are limits to what is reasonable to ride and mountain bike trail building in general. That was like when we went from hiking trails were what you rode. So roots and baby heads and rocks, that was the norm to people were starting to build stuff out that had berms. And I think we started seeing the first skinnies or bridges. Um, of course, they were really narrow at that point. And I still hate bridges to this day, but, um, you know, you started seeing them really think about flow that became more of it. You know, it seems like riding in the early late nineties was, it was all about your technical prowess to make it through the gnarliest terrain you could, you know, and all of a sudden it became, well, wait a second, what if we built trails that didn't beat the hell out of you and it could be more fun. It would be almost more like skiing. And so you started to see a little bit of transition with that. And I think actually the, the race took a knock in the mid 2000s because to some extent people felt it was too easy because there was a lot of carriage road and the single track that was in there um, was relatively flat or it was too steep to really ride. So people okay. felt like there wasn't a lot of good flowy single track. And then in the probably well, I wouldn't say mid 2000s. So I'd say probably around 2006, 2005, 2006, they started building out a little bit of new stuff. And then by 2008, 2009, the trail design started to really come around and the single track was getting fun and they were building real bridges. And then they, they closed down the plunge and they built this new thing uh, called the sluice that was a much better descent. And then they added some, some more climbs that the blueberry hill went into the course, which is sort of the switchbacky climb, which uh, and it's named the Blueberry Hill because it's a giant blueberry patch, and you literally have to be aware of black bears. 
that was kind of a, a crazy piece. There's a, every year there's bear sighting during the race at some point. What's that? Uh, sh- it's like middle of the night. What's that shadow? Yeah, seriously. Bam. Uh, so that, you know, there's definitely some wildlife up there, but the trails became better. And I think that's one of the things, um, you know, I, I talked to some folks that did the race early on, you know, so from 99 to say 2005. And they're like, yeah, I probably ought to come up and do it. But has the riding gotten any better? I'm like, my God, the course is so much better. I mean, it, it, it's fun. It's a fun mountain bike course. And it's got a little bit of something for everyone. And the carriage roads always sort of pop up at just the right time when you feel like you're about to redline. <laughs> redline and, and you're hungry. Yeah. And you right. just need to be yeah, exactly. You need to be able to get a drink out of your bottle or, or put a gel in and you get a, you know, a two minute or a minute and a half reprieve of riding carriage road. And then you're right back in it and you, you're, you're jacking through a two minute section, a single track, and then you get a 15 second piece of carriage road. And then you got a five minute piece of single track and a 45 second piece of carriage road. Um, so I, I actually really like that. I think it gives passing opportunities. So if you're a top flight rider and you're on one of the really gnarly single track sections and you get stuck behind me or somebody that's riding a little bit slower, you know that all I got to do, I might lose a couple seconds, but if I sit tight for just a minute, I'm going to get a, a passing opportunity. Right. And I think that that makes it a race that can really absorb a lot of different levels. How have the crowds changed? So from that first year, uh, you yeah. know, size-wise, again, size of the field and kind of the makeup of the field, you know, women versus guys, was it always the same? Have you seen more women throughout the years or what would have been the trends that way? You've definitely seen a, a big shift. There are a lot of women riders and good women riders. You've seen a lot more youth, um, certainly the rise in, in the North Conway area, so not too far from where the race is, is hosted. Um, the local high school there has a really good mountain bike team and mountain bike racing at the public high school level in New Hampshire is pretty popular. Um, so you have a lot of youth teams. Uh, there was an 11 year old girl there that, uh, was racing for a couple of years who just actually, I'm spacing on her name, Noble, uh, is her last name. She went on to be cyclocross national champ for junior. I think it was last year, the year before. Um, uh, but I remember when she was a little kid racing up there and, you get a really neat mix. And I think the crowd, the thing that's been interesting from an event point of view is the event has actually gotten a lot better for the spectators in terms of they do a movie at night for the kids. Uh, they do a big barbecue that's going on. They have um, music going on. They bring in sort of like almost carny events, you know, like the, the Velcro wall or the bounce wall or those type rock climbing wall. Um, there's a little pond there and the, the guys up at Great Glen trails will be demoing boats and, and different things out in the, the pond. So when folks go up, like my kids love the, even though they, they haven't raced the full race, they love being up there cause they'll camp out. They'll meet up with people. They sometimes only see once a year. Um, they're, they get to go watch the movie. There's a bagpiper that at sunrise, that's how the whole place wakes up. This guy walks out, he's playing the bagpipes. Okay. Uh, it's just it's it's cool and it's an event and plus that's all they 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 know for that weekend right yeah yeah that's that's <laughs> what they're doing, doing. That for every year since they were born absolutely yeah and and it's so it's really fun and you know they have the twenty four minute race for the kids so there's a, a mountain bike race for little kids and then they do all these other crazy events like putting whipped cream on each other's heads and then throwing cheese curls and trying to get who can get the most to stick to their partner's head or whatever right. And, and they, so it's nice because, you know, for a lot of times when you do an, an endurance race, if you drag the family along, 
they get to see you for five or 10 minutes, maybe a couple times during the race, not even, maybe it's just a, a couple times during the race and you're gone for nine hours, 10 hours, 12 hours. And so you're, you're burning a lot of equity at, at the home front. And the cool part is with that's, great that, that's great that other people think that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, in this case, it's a weekend where you almost get, you, you almost earn back some equity because everyone gets to do something fun you know, and right. it's you included the good family. Time. You're a good yeah. guy. You're a good vacation. guy. Right, right. And that may be why I'm seeing more campers and stuff because I know my wife doesn't like to sleep in the tent. So maybe that's what it is. They they started figuring out that hey, if we update our accommodations, we'll get a longer hall pass for the weekend. Right, and several years. Right? Yes, absolutely. Right. <laughs> that's that's great that other people think of it as uh, as equity. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to know I'm not the only one. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens when my wife hears this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just don't let her listen. We'll we'll give her another clip. We'll just give her a separate episode. <laughs> Edit it out. So with this with this pond. So everyone people might be familiar, listeners. I know there's some listeners that are familiar with this race. Uh but the pond that is the picture in every race or every every picture for this race. What's the deal with that? So you have to go through that or do you is that like a optional you know, that floating bridge or whatever it is through the pond. What, what's the deal with that? There, there are two ways around. You can either go across that or you can go the little bit longer way. Um, and they, each year, the first year they put the bridge in, it was a no brain. I mean, it's, has I it hate been, Has it been several it, years? Yeah. They've done it now for a few years. Okay. And, um, the first year it was super, super stable to the point where like you really had to ride off of it intentionally if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think anyone fell off that, that first year. So then the next year they loosened it up a little bit. And so it was a little bit more wobbly, but it was still a really easy way to get across. And then last year they loosened it up a fair amount and then put a turn in the damn thing. Um, and still it was relatively easy to get across, but it messed with your head a little bit more as you got tired and as the bridge got wet, you know, of course it gets a little bit more slippery, right. um, but there is an option to go around it. But the pond also is at the start, it's a Le Mans start and you have to run around that damn thing um, to get to your bike. And that is the most miserable part of the race by far. <laughs> so if you're ever on a team or if you are on a team this year, Sucker somebody else into doing the start because that that's awful. I hate running. That's why I ride a bike. Right. Um, I th- I think that's pretty popular for for long endurance events. I know oh, you know Wasa twenty four is the same yep. way. Uh, we do. I've done that race several times, and it's like a I don't even know four hundred meter run. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, twenty four hours in the old Pueblo is a is a pretty long run with like yep. thousands of people. Yeah. And I I think that's uh. I think that's pretty popular, but yeah. So you run around this pond. Hey, so have you, did you take the the shortcut across this bridge or did you? Uh, yeah, take- I pretty much always rode the bridge. Okay. Um, this year in the past, they have shut the bridge down like starting at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock at night. And it didn't open again until five 30 or something in the morning, just because they wanted to be able to see if somebody rode off. Yeah. This year they are going to have it lit and it'll be open all night. Okay. So that'll be a change, but it's, it's a it's a bit of a mind trip. I mean, for people that haven't done it, you always see at the beginning of the race, they're sort of sorting it out before the start. Oh, I got to go ride it just so I don't get freaked out. But once the race is going, I, I don't know, maybe a couple people have fallen off. I don't I'm not aware of that many other than the people that do it on purpose to, you know, right. create a splash. Right. Exactly. So where are you at these days? What uh, the plan for this year? It's the last year. 
20 it is the last year, year last year what first of all let's let's get the specifics the bike the plan where are you going to yeah. be racing this thing or are you just going to try to get out and maybe watch your kids do a lap while you're doing laps or what that's that would plan? be ideal that's what i'm hoping I, i'm going to go negotiate with them actually uh you know, this weekend, cause we're, we're heading over to Stowe, Vermont to do some riding over there. So maybe we'll, they'll get the bug a little bit more. Um, and then drag them up and have them pre-ride the course. I would love to, to get at least my oldest to do at least one lap and go out and, and just have done it. I, I think it's one of those events that, um, you know, it means a lot to me. It means a lot to my family. And, and certainly I think to, uh, the Mount Washington Valley area, it's, it's a pretty significant event. It's made it a long time. I mean, I'm kind of bummed it, it's wrapping up after 20 years, but, um, I, I get that. I understand it. You know, the racing world is getting tougher and tougher to, to, you know, make cash positive, but I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a good time. I think it's going to be a hell of a party. I know there's a lot of folks that I've talked to that I haven't seen up there in a few years are going to try and make their way back up. Um, I'll hopefully I won't have to race my fat bike again. I've got a, a Kona, um, Hey, Hey Supreme. So a, a nice carbon, uh, setup that's way too nice for my level of fitness these days, but you know, that's, <laughs> hey, that's, that's yeah. Yeah. As you, as you, you know, get older and you make more money, you end up buying, you know, you try to offset the weight by buying lighter and lighter right. stuff. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, but I love, it's a, I love that rig. Um, but I'm looking to go out and, you know, I'd like to try and do 10 laps. That would be my goal for this year. And uh, maybe actually they made a couple changes to the course. So I got to go up early and um, mark it out. Cause I usually try and do like a hundred miles. That would be my goal okay. to ride a hundred miles of the race. You now have what they call old man power, so you should be fine. Yeah. <laughs> right? After doing it that many years, you know yeah. what to expect. You know what you Absolutely. can do. Even if you're not sort in the best shape. Man. Yeah, you can still play. Um, and what I've, what I've been doing the last couple of years is I'll go, I'll race, you know, a four or five hour block and chill out, go to the barbecue, maybe have a beer or two, hang out with some friends, walk around, see a bunch of people I haven't seen, maybe do a night lap, and then – get some rest and get up at around when the, when the bagpiper starts playing, jump back on the bike and race to the end. Um, so that's the advantage of doing it as a solo. You can do that, right? You don't, you're not, somebody's not waiting for you at the start finish area. The years of trying to ride full 24 hour time frame are, are a few years behind me now. Um, but it'll be fun. I mean, I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward to seeing everyone. It's, it's always a good time to get up there and you get the butterflies, even though, you know, you've done it a million times, you know, you're not really, there's no pressure. You just, you're going to go out and ride, but it's a race, man. You're putting a number plate on and you want to represent, you know, you want to, you want to look good as you're going by, you know, there's going to be some photographers out there. So you, you try and time your breathing so that you can suck your gut in right when you ride by them and, and uh, maybe try and make Flex it look your legs like you're, a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Make sure your fingers are right the hell away from the brake levers. And, uh, you know, it's, it's Andre Agassi images, everything you want to look good. Right. So when your kids give you shit in five years, you can be like, <laughs> look at this, this is the way I, I got it in me, you know? And, and it's, it's funny cause having been up there for so long, I know almost all the photographers and, and a lot of people are shooting video. I know them as well. And so I, you know, I, they'll see me coming and they'll know. So I know that they're going to take the picture. So you, you've, you got to do everything you can to try and, uh, you know, make it look good. Um, but it, it's, it's fun. I mean, it's, it's one of those races that for me, it, it's like going home and it reminds me every time I take the start and every time I push the cranks around and, and go around just how much fun it can be. 
and how alive you feel. And you're up there in the beautiful mountains. I mean, you are. You're at the base of Mount Washington. So you're looking up at these majestic peaks. And, you know, you never know. We've had some horrific weather up there from time to time. I mean, I remember one year where I probably pushed my bike more than I rode it because we were in like nine inches of mud for like half the course. That was brutal. Um, but there are other years where it's been bone dry. So that, but that's part of it, you know, because while it sucks at the time, the bragging rights are epic and, yes. and, you know, everyone, you know, then be down someplace else later on that season, having a beer and they'll be, Oh, did you race 24? And Oh yeah. Oh man, you're so hardcore. And you know, it's just, it's kind of fun, right? You know, I, I will never be a top flight racer, but you get to be a part of a race that has had a lot of really good riders come through and, and you can say that, you know, you put your tire track right on top of theirs and, and that's pretty cool. You know, it's, it's similar to the hill climb. You get to, to say you, you're riding the same hill and the same, same track that some of the best in the world have ridden. And it's kind of fun. You know, you actually get to test yourself in that way. When you're watching the, the Tour de France or something of that nature, very few of us are going to make the trip over and ride Alpe d'Huez or, or ride in the Champs or do something of that nature. But this is a chance to race on the, the same course as some good ones. Is, is this going to be, is this going to be when you're done, is this going to be like that last day of high school sports or college <laughs> sport? You know, cause you're like, Oh, you go through it and it's like, Oh, it won't be that bad. But then you get done with that. I remember it. You get done with that yeah. last pitch. Yeah. Like you lose, you know, either you're going to win the championship or you're going to lose your last game. Right. I remember that losing that laying on the ground and thinking, Oh crap, this is it. That's it. Yeah. I mean, is it going to be like that or is it going to be I, like, I, all right, gonna, it's time to move on. There's going to be some emotion to the fact that that race, um, is, is wrapping up that said, um, I'm very confident means you're getting old. Something new will come up. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sitting in my office right now and I'm looking around and I've got a number plate from a race that I used to run up there called the Porky Gulch classic that, okay. that we only did for about four or five years. But we, we did a criterium down the Storyland that was part of this thing. And it, and it's one of those things that still has people talking about it. And the 24 hour race will, will have people talking and somebody will come up with some harebrained idea to race from one side of the mountain to the other. So I, I think, you know, who knows, give us four or five years and we'll convince the powers that be that we should do a point to point race, which are, you know, those are growing in popularity or we'll, we'll come up with something else and the spirit of it will, will live on. I mean, I, I think the one thing I've certainly found in racing uh, bikes is it's a small world. And while, while events come and go, the, the community that is there tends to stick together. It might take you a little while to find the same faces again, um, but you'll find them somewhere and that same vibe will come along. And, and plus the legend grows. I'm sure my times are going to get way faster in the next 10 years exactly. in terms of the times I put down in 2000s, especially yeah. if I go in and hack the website. Re exactly. Uh, <laughs> remember, you know, those, so, remember those years when you were racing pro? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I'm pretty good with Photoshop, so I, yeah. I might make myself look really fit. Yeah, your Trek sponsorship and the you know, nutrition deals. You were rolling then. <laughs> Absolutely. I, you know, I, I had the, uh, I had the whole USPS team there doing handups to me as I was, you know, cruising yeah, through. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's, it's going to be, there's certainly going to be some emotions. I think the one thing that I'm excited about is it'll, um, it's going to force me to, to look at some different options. Um, I did the wilderness 101 a couple of years ago. Um, although I didn't finish that, I ended up DNFing, which that was, that was hard to do. Because I have not ever dropped out an endurance race before. 
Um, and I'd done the J challenge a bunch of years ago. So there, there's a bunch of, you know, hundred milers that I've been curious about. So I think it'll give, it'll force me to some extent to look at something different, um, uh, which will be fun and maybe start a new tradition. And my kids are now older, so maybe they'll, maybe I'll let them pick yeah, and, and we'll chase them around for a bit. Right. No, that sounds pretty good. Before we wrap this up, I want to ask you what are your thoughts on why 24, 12, you know, these lap style races have kind of been in decline and why, yeah. you know, like this race, why is it going away? And the 24 hour thing, what, what happened? Yeah, I, I think it, I think, I think a couple things. One, I don't think 24 hour racing did a great job of creating feeder events. I, I think the idea of a 24 hour race is intimidating. And, and what's crazy to me is like Leadville 100 or, you know, uh, the wilderness 101, a hundred miles is a long friggin' way. And I, I think those races are actually harder, but for whatever reason, cause it's a set distance and, and the winning time is in eight hours, even though you're going to be 12 to 14 hours, it almost seems more plausible than 24 hours. So I think there's borderline a marketing challenge. The sport had, it, it sounded almost too intimidating. Building a team that can commit to that weekend is hard and it's expensive. So I, I think there's some, some cost challenges that go along with it. Um, and I think point to point, just it, it's, you're going someplace. I mean, to some extent I think about it, I've got literally well over, I don't know how many, but well over a hundred laps on that course. I'm not going to see something new. Um, whereas if I go and do a point to point, I, I will. And I think that's, that's been part of the challenge. And I think the cost structure has been, been rough. I think as 24 hour races have built more of that festival, um, setting, they've got to bring in that infrastructure. They got to rent big tents. They got to bring in food. They got to, it's expensive. Yeah. The timing systems are expensive to be able to calculate the laps and all of that stuff. So it's, it's cheaper to put on a point to point and you can typically with a point to point, you can use the infrastructure of a town, um, as your start and finish and you put all the single track in the middle, whereas a 24 hour race, you got to have everything pretty much in the same area. Mm -hmm. So I think logistically there are some challenges with that. Um, I don't think it's a format that's going to completely go away. It's like everything else, you know, it'll come back in vogue in another 10, 15 years, you know, somebody will rediscover it and it'll, it'll come surging back. And I, I also think that people were looking for something different. Um, before 24 hour racing really grabbed hold, that idea of endurance mountain biking didn't exist. So, right. you know, now we have those point to points and it, it'll, it'll be interesting to watch. I mean, it's like watching crit racing versus road racing. So what's going to happen is you're going to have point to point to point, right? So if, yeah, if the speed rate. Like, well, no, no, no. Well, stage racing, but, uh, like something that'll take a day you have right now you have back or bike packing races, right? Those are taking a day. That's a little bit too much for people. But right. what if you had like the wilderness one oh one where you did the, say like a big loop, you turned around and you came back the other way, or you did, uh, I'm going to be doing the Tatanka 100 next weekend. Yeah. And what if you did, you know, it's going to take some people, like you said, 10 hours, they could go out and back. Who knows? Yeah, ten, yeah. ten years from now, we might be doing that. Is my point. Yeah. But I, I think there's a lot of opportunity. Land uses. I mean, the other thing that has changed dramatically is the point-to-point races now are viable because organizations like IMBA and NEMBA and all the the trail use advocacy groups have done the hard work of opening those trails in a way that 
uh, somebody can buy an insurance piece and run an event. If you go back 10, 15 years, the only place you could do that might be in a national forest or self-contained ski area or something of that nature because a lot of the trails we were riding 10, 15, 20 years ago were illegal. And yes. so to do a point to point, there was no way you could pull it off. I know when I did the J challenge, whatever year that was, 2007, the reason that race went away is half the stuff we were racing on, we didn't have permission to be on. And so the promoter basically got you know slapped and was told you can't do it again. And having done some point to point stuff for ski racing in terms of being an organizer, that land use stuff, that's a challenge because one person can say, nope, you can't cross my land. And you're screwed. You got to like come up with some crazy end around, or you got to shoot the gap and hope the guy's not some nut job out there shooting rock salt. <laughs> right. So, exactly. Exactly. You know. I, and, yeah. I, go ahead. Oh no. Go ahead. I was just gonna say. I think that's one of the big things that has changed. Is mountain biking has grown up, and it has advocates, and it has advocates in city government and in town government, and in, and in even the federal government. There are people up there within the Forest Service that know about mountain biking. They understand trail use. You have groups that are, you know, preserving trails, maintaining trails, and it's all above board. And that has dramatically changed what, what the opportunities are for races. Right. And I think that's the biggest, one of the biggest factors that's been the decline of the 24 hour race is the fact that it takes so much. It takes so much training yeah. just for that race. Then it takes the whole weekend. Then it takes yeah. you a month to recover, cleaning bikes, recovering physically, recovering mo your money wise. I mean, there's so many events now compared to, let's say, 15 years ago that why would you want to put it all into one when you could do three or four? Absolutely. And, and buy some new bike parts at the same time, right? Yeah. And and you're not dependent on as many people. I mean, if, if you're going to go, if I'm going down the Wilderness 101, I've got two other guys that are willing to split the hotel and the drive. That's great. Yeah. But that, that wouldn't be enough to do a four-person or five-person team. No. Somebody would uh, have to have an RV. Then you'd have to yep. have yeah. food for the weekend. You know, families drag them along. If they didn't want to come, if they did, that's, you know, you have to pack for that family. It, having a family, I have two little kids, and having the yep. family just to pack for the family, it's it's, it's stressful. <laughs> that's a whole week job, you know? Yeah, and you feel guilty. I mean, I, let's be real as, as right. a parent. And certainly this isn't, this isn't male versus female because there are a lot of female racers up there that are, you know, dad is, is the one hanging in the pit, but there's a level of guilt. You know, you're like, wow, they're having to watch the kids while I'm having fun. Quote, unquote, that fun is in air quotes because sometimes it doesn't feel like that much fun. Um, but that, that is part of the challenge because they have to sit through that for so long. That's, that's what I love about cross racing is, you know, I raced for 45 minutes and then we could go out to dinner someplace and, you know, everyone had a good time. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think that's where, you know, the 24 Hours of Great Glen, I think, had that part right in terms of from an event point of view, they really did a great job of, of taking care of the spectators and the families and the folks working the pits. I think the biggest challenge is it got really expensive um, and they've, they've battled that trying to figure out how to better manage the costs. But as demands for better timing, I mean, the timing systems are, are intense to be able to, I mean, they've got, I don't know how many computers they're running and timing mats and, and all of that. That's a, that's a big expense. Um, so that as, as the racing got more competitive, the need to have real time information kept growing. And, and for most people, they don't need that, but for the, to bring in the top guys you do. And if you're spending, I have no idea, but I mean, I, I'm guessing you're spending 10 to $12,000 just on your timing to rent all that infrastructure out for the weekend, that's expensive and you got to recoup that. Mm -hmm. Whereas you can do a point to point with a stopwatch. Right. Exactly. Yep. Yep. 
Well, all right, cool. Is there anything else you wanted to mention, you know, maybe about this year or the race in general? Like that Certainly, I mean, I, I would just throw out, you know, for folks that are heading up or, or that have done it in the past, a big thank you to the to the crew up at Grakeland. Howie Weems, the GM up there, who's been uh, with the race since it's, I mean, he was one of the guys that sort of concepted it. Paul Giblin, who's no longer up there, but a longtime event promoter. Nate Harvey, who runs the, the shop up there, and Eli Walker, and just that whole crew between the Auto Road and Great Glen and all the volunteers that help, because there are a ton of them. You know, just a big tip of the hat to those guys for over the years putting on a real world-class event and, and making that weekend in August always a really special time and a really special place. I, I think it's you know, we often focus a lot on the racers and everything, but there is a ton of work that goes on behind the scenes. And and those guys, a lot of them literally do it just for fun. They, they do it as a volunteer piece. And and I think that's really, really cool because to, to know that people are going out, I get it when you're volunteering for, you know, a, a hurricane relief or something, that makes sense. But to volunteer right. that much time so that people can go race their bikes around in, in a circle, that, that's a special breed. Um, and so a big tip of the hat to those folks and all the people that have, have made that a, an important part of their August, I, I think, you know, from the racers point of view, I, I think that's a big thank you from me because it's been a really, it's been a fun run. I mean, to think I'm going to be starting this for my 19th time, um, that's pretty wild. And to think of all the friends I've made, people I've interacted with and people that I've passed and have passed me, we shouted out those words of encouragement or when you, somebody was in a pit and need a spare wheel and you're able to help them out um, or whatever. It's just neat. It's a, it's a neat part of my, my own personal cycling history and a neat part of cycling history for the Northeast. And it's been fun to be a part of it. I think it's great how you're, you, this will be your 19th year. And I think you said you're 42. Yep. That's almost half your life. Yeah, no. <laughs> like you're a young guy. I mean, this is, this yeah. is half your life. Yeah. It's, so. it's, it's weird to think about it. I mean, it, that's been the one thing I was joking my wife the other night about it. I said, you know, that's, between her and the 24-hour race, those are probably the two most consistent things in the last <laughs> right. 20-something years right. of my life. Um, so that's pretty neat. You know, it's been a neat way to track time. Well, well, awesome. So listeners, if you have any questions, head over to 24hoursofgreatglen.com. That's the number 24, then hoursofgreatglen.com. Get all your information. Get signed up. Check it out. There's information about kids and uh, how to sign up. There's a forum contact information is all on the website. Head over there, check it out. If you see Sven out there racing around, be sure to yell at him and say, Hey, come on, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> tell, you know, say something about uh, being, I heard you on mountain bike radio. I think that'd be really cool. Uh, put a little spring in his, in his pedal. Absolutely. So, but all right, Sven, thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. This is a lot of fun. All right. Awesome. And thank you listeners for tuning in. That'll do it for this episode on Mountain Bike Radio.